How Do You Engineer Your Nuclear Engineering Podcast. <laughs> I'm a host, and my name is Peter Martin. I'm a host, Abby Desjardins. And I'm a host, Simon Whitmel. I am but a lowly guest, Calvin Pettinger. And you're here today to talk to us about nuclear robots? Uh, that's what it sounds like, yep. Yep. All right, so these are these are robots that work in nuclear environments, not nuclear not powered robots. Not made of, yeah. Yeah, uh, making a robot that would be powered by nuclear is a little outside of our uh, technological advancements at this point. I was totally being purposefully misleading with mm. our descriptions. Yeah. Fair enough. I guess you could make like a nuclear like a nuclear powered robot if it was like the size of a house. Yeah. Well, the problem is that nuclear power generation is a very boring kind of power generation. It's just like generating. Power with coal. It's just heat turning water into steam, which spins a turbine. Just whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> not even talking about what I do. This is just how stuff works. <laughs> All right. So we're going to have lots of time to learn about that. But first, let's introduce something ridiculous. I have one thing to add. Uh-oh. Um, I'm pretty sure Mars rovers are nuclear-powered robots. Oh, yeah, maybe we did are. get into the whatever the... I don't know. <laughs> they may have tiny fusion core or fission core excuse me well don't they have no it's the um it's the fission or the the, the heater the thermal yeah yeah i forget what the rtg uh radio thermal generator yeah mm. from uh the martian yeah i learned that from yeah. the martian but yeah. it's still just generating heat and then that is used to create power in some way using either peltier or seaback call back to episode one <laughs> which what? one is which <laughs> and we never actually described what those terms meant we just uh, threw them in. That's all right. That's what we okay. do. We're, Let's alienate people. Use technical terms and not do not explain them. We're gonna have a we'll have a glossary episode one day. It'll yeah. just it'll just be an hour of us being we like Simon reading the dictionary. How do you engineer jargon? Yeah. <laughs> Calvin introduced something ridiculous. Tell us about your like design for an axe throwing trebuchet. Oh yeah, do that. Mm-hmm. Do more of those things. Okay. Uh so Basically, I decided to design a uh, axe-throwing robot of some type. So I started off with just a mechanism for it uh, and decided on a trebuchet because it seemed to have the most arm-like motion. So I figured that would be the best way to go. Uh, but uh, looking into siege weapon in g- weaponry in general is kind of interesting. There's a lot of math involved, like especially modern-day uh, analysis of siege weaponry. It's crazy. Well, math mm-hmm. doesn't really change like it's not like medieval math was fundamentally different from modern math for the most part other yeah. than weird math and things people get into in research and that's a really terrible thing to s- yeah but that being <laughs> math said doesn't change except for the part that changes that's really insightful <laughs> Pete. i don't know i often just feel like a lot of the medieval stuff is done until they make it work really good probably and i don't know how much yeah. of it was done by math it was all magic. There were wizards yeah. and dragons, and they mm-hmm. just took care of it. Mm-hmm. We yeah. made this thing, and then it broke. So obviously, it wasn't the right thing to make. So we'll make something different. Yeah, or that does case- fundamentally sound like a lot of engineering. Yeah, it's true. But at the time, they said God did it. Yeah, <laughs> it was less rapid prototyping, more. <laughs> celestial. Let's see. Let's see if God likes this trebuchet, and if not, we'll make him a better one. Um, okay, so how would we design siege weapons then? Bamboo. <laughs> it does seem we to be like the go-to yeah too much yeah. it's cheap it grows fast i, I mean I, I feel like there's probably already a fair bit of siege weapon design out there made out of bamboo we should make a siege weapon out of something less common i think generally our approach has been let's make it better than the existing approach so let's throw out trebuchets and catapults and just go full-on like i don't know something like, better battering ram 
that point, aren't you just into basically firearms? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Big, big firearms. Or, or we need to come up with an alternative power source for it. Giant blunderby. Blunderby. <laughs> is blunderbuss is the singular now? Yeah. Okay. I believe so. I'm making things up as per usual. But then we're just into really big cannons. We need to go a different direction with this. All right. So do you want to take modern siege weaponry and adapt it to medieval siege weaponry? Modern siege weaponry like what? Uh, I don't know. ICBMs. <laughs> we're going to make ICBMs <laughs> only. I or, don't know what, what that are the, is. What are the, like, intercontinental inter- ballistic missile. Okay. It's not really modern. It's more Cold War. I guess modern would be like rocket propelled grenades. Okay. Like if you were going to make a medieval rocket propelled grenade. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it in our brains. But with the trebuchet? Yes. I, that'd be cool. <laughs> I, I, trebuchet propelled grenade. <laughs> like the thing from uh, Lord of the Rings, like the big ball full of black powder, only you launch that with a yeah. trebuchet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where do you start? What's the first step? You got to make yourself a big, scary, spiky looking ball. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if Using... it's Lord of the Rings, you need like a big, scary guy to wield it. Some sort of troll-like creature. Okay, so step one is find a really good blacksmith. Step two is find a really ugly guy. who can carry large smithed things okay but what what if we we need to give medieval people the ability to move this around because like wheels we're we're engineering we're not just gonna have trolls yeah that's true okay so what's yeah so like a cart i don't know or like a crane okay donkey powered we're still talking about moving the ammunition here, right? Not yeah. even the actual siege weaponry itself. No, we're, we're getting from the blacksmith where we created this me- spiky metal ball. We yeah. filled it with black powder, and now we're moving it to our siege weapon location. Hmm. But we don't have trolls, so we need something that we could do it with here. More big, ugly guys. But, no, okay. We have, how, we have how, plebs. And, like, how we, attractive we just... the guys are will have no effect on their ability to move a large chunk of iron. I mean, let's pretend that we are the elite. We are the... Uh, bourgeois and that we have a, nobles i believe yeah, nobles. <laughs> and we have collections of plebs that we can just put to work for free i don't know i like the donkeys so you're saying idea. we're slave owners kind of yeah this is getting dark yeah, technically land going, well owners. land owners we are we, the, uh, we were appointed, the peasants come with the land we, we have we were appointed by god abby okay this took think... a weird non-engineering <laughs> <term>. <laughs> all right i like the idea of a different um a different power source because it all, all seems to be related to a whole bunch of people winding things up and putting a whole lot of spring tension. What if we created something that, uh, I don't know, collected like wind power and raised a large weight that way? Or, or something like, like we back up a dam and use, release the water and use the like rushing water to launch That's something. That's kind of cool. And just <laughs> that would like be cool. A giant funnel. Yeah. Okay. Like a really long pipe. You have a dam and you have the pipe goes down and at the bottom you have sort of like a U bend and then you load you load the explosive into the pipe so that as the water rushes down, you have like Ooh. an air jet. It's like a really big pea trap <laughs> with a, yeah. Know. Or like you're making a potato cannon only yeah. huge and you're using water instead of compressed air to drive it. And Love not it. potatoes. Yeah. No, instead of potatoes, you're you launching explosives. a big iron ball full of black powder. Okay. A little bit of wadding and you're good to go. Yeah. How do so you aim? You have to build it pointing at your target. <laughs> <laughs> You control the water flow, I guess, to a certain extent, but that's hard with a dam. Okay, what if What's you... What's the tube made out of? Well, I assumed metal, but maybe you could do it, like, leather? I think it's what most, ho- like, hosing at that point would have been made would have been, like, Probably, a leather hose. Yeah. yeah, with a hose, you can direct it like a fire hose if you have enough big eyes. Yeah, and then you just basically <laughs> have to have a barrel. Okay, so we need a leather hose. A whole, probably a bunch of them. I don't think you can make, like, one really big 
tube out of leather. It would probably leak like a sieve. Mm-hmm. So you'd need a whole bunch of little leather hoses. And Not- then they'd all like join together into the back of, I don't know, a big like garbage can type thing that you would use the actual aim at. So you basically want like a giant bagpipes kind of, but with a, a larger squeezy thing that, uh, and it's powered by water. Yeah. I wonder if you could just use like a really big bellows and then like you just get a whole bunch of guys up on a platform and they all jump off onto the bellows and it launches <laughs> like yeah. you get an air gun and you could launch all kinds of interesting stuff with that. That'd be mm. more effective if you aren't near a source of water. Yeah. It also is kind of assumes that you're, you have water up high that yeah. you can cause to like mm. create this. Yeah. Although I feel like just the flow of a river would probably not grant you that much potential energy for launching an object. Okay. No, I have a new plan. All right. So you have your river, and your river is driving a big water wheel, which yeah. winds up a giant golf club, and the golf club swings <laughs> down, and then it hits your ball full of black powder, and if that doesn't explode <laughs> and kill you, then you get a nice loft, like, right into your siege target. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, you just need to come up with some medieval way of the first strike actually being what arms your explosive. <laughs> that would be awesome. Ooh. So the, it's a giant golf club made out of flint. And it's like a pitching wedge. So yeah. when it hits it, it launches it up into the air and also lights it on fire. So it falls in the middle. Yeah. Like the initial strike lights a fuse, which yeah. then has a time delay. So you just need to, uh, tune that into how far you're actually. I mean, it's possible. Again, I don't want to get back too much to rocket propel grenades, but from what I've learned again from Mythbusters, as we normally go back to, um, even though you're firing it out of essentially a bazooka, it doesn't explode until it hits a target because it has a fuse trigger on the front. Yeah. Okay. What you do is inside the middle of it is some sort of like a glass container that has whatever sets it off. And then mm. when you hit it with the golf club the first time, it breaks open. Yeah. And then it waits uh, for a second impact. Yeah. Like it's, it arms by being hit the first time. So, or it just is it like a time delay. Like it's, it starts a chemical reaction that only goes off after what you hope to be more than enough time for it to reach the target and... Yeah. Well, well that's a lot of hoping I, though. No, I, I like, I like, I like so Simon's idea because there are chemically unstable explosives that could potentially be made from a two part solution. So once it's mixed, it's very unstable and explosive. Uh, yeah. But no, I think it'd yeah. work. It, it's really not a whole lot different from like using a golf club to like hit a ball full of nitroglycerin at somebody. Only really big and awesome. Yeah. 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 Also, can you imagine, like, if you're in a city and you're being besieged and you see these guys building a giant, like, golf club machine off on the distance? Or attaching a big hose to a dam. I think that would also be awesome. It's pretty intimidating. Yeah, but... I think the key would be also including a giant statue of whoever your king is (laughs) attached to the golf club. (laughs) Yeah, so it's... Yeah, you'll get psychological warfare at the same time. Yeah. You're creating a a colossus that is also going to play golf with bombs. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Makes sense. I think we could totally do that. Mm-hmm. Are we going to include a Colossus both for the golf club machine and for the giant hose machine? You build a giant fireman, only he's firing. <laughs> he's creating fire instead of putting it out. Yeah. Exactly. Very intimidating. I feel mm-hmm. like every time you used it, it would be referred to as a four-day siege. <laughs> oh. That, <laughs> that was a little subpar. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, okay. I, I'm, I'm not going to rise to that. <laughs> I know, I don't even... <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> All right, I like that solution. Giant golf-playing robot. Mm-hmm. Doable. Made out of wood. Because yep. we're still in the medieval times. Because we keep going yep. back to medieval times. I guess we're just copping out of modern engineering for these challenges. Yeah. Modern engineering is hard. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, it's much easier to come up with a solution. It's like, this is the best solution for the time when the time is the dark ages. 
as yeah. opposed to like modern times where everyone's going to be saying there are much better solutions for that. Yeah, you guys <laughs> so, are Somebody's dumb. already come up with something better. Way to go. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Okay. So back to our regularly scheduled programming. Mm-hmm. Cool. Calvin's here. Yeah. I am. So Calvin, tell us where you came from. What was your path to what you do now? Mm-hmm. Take us on a journey. Sort of a odd, long and meandering path. I oh, feel man. like that's, that's what everyone yeah. says. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has a nice meandering path. It's great. Yeah. I feel like engineering is not one of those places where many people end up going directly from, here's what I want to do, to, hey, I'm doing this thing now that I wanted to do. Even if you're like 100% certain coming out of high school, I'm going to be an engineer, this is my life goal, or even going into high school, but then you get out of high school and the question becomes, okay, what kind of engineering, where, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Or even if you know, like things change when you're in it. Like I've talked to high school students as part of the first robotics mentoring that I do. And they'll say, Oh man, I'm going to Waterloo. I'm going to be a mechatronics engineer. Cause I like Arduinos. And then they get into that program. They're like, this is not Arduinos. This is different and hard. And I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm or terrible you- at calculus. Yeah. I don't know if I can be an engineer anymore. <laughs> or even if you manage to hold the course all the way through university, you come out and then nobody will hire you for what you want to do. So you have to find something else anyway. Oh yeah. So anyway, that was more or less my path. I kind of went into engineering because I really didn't know what else to do. And it seemed like a good way to do something kind of cool and make some money. What kind of Uh, engineering did you do? Oh, when I was going through university, I was doing engineering systems and computing. What's that about? Uh, A lot of controls, (laughs) a little bit of mechanical. I tried to focus on mechatronics and robotics on my way through because I thought that was the most interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, and then some computing stuff, mostly like programming firmware and a little bit of PLC. Did you also do economics? I did do economics. I did a minor in business administration. Yeah, that cool. sounds useful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then when I came out of an, uh, university and couldn't find any jobs directly in engineering, I went into technical sales instead. So business kind of helped with that. Mm-hmm. But found that to be terribly boring. A lot of, especially a lot of <laughs> introductory sales jobs involve cold calling. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically sitting at your desk and phoning up random people from a list, trying to convince them to buy things. I get emails all the time now from people just advertising like their injection molding systems or stuff like that. It's yeah, it's the worst. Try not to be too hard on those people because they probably don't want to be doing that job either. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I kind of started off in that and then shifted over to another technical sales position, but it was inside sales. That was a little better because then I wasn't trying to contact other people to get them to buy things. People were contacting me with their problems and trying to figure out what I could sell them that would make their problems go away. That sounds better. Yeah. 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 All right, you have to you're gonna have to clarify the distinction between technical and inside sales. So in, people are Tec- calling you from within the company. No, or? technical inside sales just means that I wasn't out and about or trying to contact people outside of the oh, company. Okay, they were coming to you. So they were coming to me customers. instead of me going to them. Exactly. That's okay. pretty much all inside sales is. It's, yeah. I stay I stay inside, and, uh, and they <laughs> they come to me. That uh, sounds like my kind of sales. Yeah, and that was for a transformer company called Hammond out of uh, Waterloo, Ontario. The small one. There's actually two Hammonds in Waterloo, but I'm sure there are a lot of Hammonds in Waterloo. <laughs> there's two, there's two <laughs> Hammond companies that both make transformers, but they're two completely different companies. 
That sounds That's very not confusing, confusing at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, originally, they were one company, and then the founder died, and his, uh, I guess his sons had a little bit of an infight and split the company in half. Oh my gosh. And they decided to both call it's it. It's a good marketing decision. They, right yeah, there. they both just decided to call it the same name. Exactly. Isn't that like the Twix commercial? Right, right, yeah. Right yeah. <laughs> Left Hammond. Yeah. This is so, big Hammond. One does step up, Transformers, one does step down. <laughs> <laughs> or Buck and Boost. <laughs> I know about Buck and Boost now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh the one I worked for mostly did like um smaller control type transformers that would be used in like power supplies or um small applications, not like the big one big power transformers you'll see on power lines. So that was a lot of dealing with uh audio files. Guys like that would send me schematics about oh, uh, cool. with am- like audio amplifiers they wanted to build. Oh, neat. Um and then I would basically try to spec out one of our transformers to match what was on the schematic they were sending me. Hmm. Uh, and usually it was like guitar transformers or audiophile transformers. Yeah. Oh, cool. So how did you get from there to nuclear energy? Uh, pretty much that was just a random phone call. My, I guess my dad knew a guy and his company was look company who I'm working for now. Uh, I was looking for a just engineer for their electrical department Okay. That's how I got my first job. Yeah. I came out of undergrad and there was the company my dad worked for needed an engineer. I'm yeah. Like, I'm an engineer. I can totally do whatever. <laughs> I know those things. Yeah. It definitely uh proves the point that it's not always what you know, it's who you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get like the little jobs that trickle down through your network and of people that are far more interesting. So then I ended up interviewing for that job and and took that instead and that kind of brought me actually into an electrical design uh type position. The time the company was referred to as Babcock and Wilcox, uh, Canada. I've since changed our name, but we're the same company. Oh, cool. Is it just rebranding or was there like yeah, an overhaul in the company? There was a spinoff. So there, the, it's an, a U.S. owned company. Mm. Uh, and then basically they did not just nuclear, but fossil, um, other construction projects, fossil, fossil fuel, uh, yeah. power plants. So cool. like coal and whatnot. Yeah, so some kind of spinoff happened, and basically the BWXT became a separate company from the original, like, Babcock and Wilcox company. Uh, and we've got all the nuclear stuff. Cool. Nice. So, so tell us all about the nuclear stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, basically, for electrical design, I, being that I haven't been in a lot of other industries, I can't say this for sure, but I feel like it's almost backwards from what a lot of other electrical engineers end up doing. Um one of the major problems with working in a nuclear facility isn't the nuclear aspect of it. It's kind of the like tertiary effects of being in a nuclear plant where you have, you're in a very tight, um, in industrial environment there. It's difficult to work in because of the, uh, death. Well, no, (laughs) (laughs) the, uh, the amount of like the safety and like, personal protective equipment you have to wear is very different than a lot of other industrial places where it's pretty much just like over there. It's just trying not to breathe that stuff in. Whereas in nuclear, it's, it's radiation. Don't go talk to Cliff. Yeah. <laughs> not only is there, don't try, try not to breathe that in, but it's also don't let this stuff touch your skin because it's radioactive and your skin will absorb it. Uh, basically radioactive water, water vapor that's in the air. Fun. So the air is trying to kill you. Pretty much. Good. Yeah. That's How's the, the security at those places? Oh, it's it, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, regularly see people walking around with like assault rifles and whatnot. It's Safe. standard. 
feels like working at the airport. I worked at the airport for a while and that yeah. was something you got to get used to was oh, the yeah. guys with the M. The every every M6s. day going into work is like going through the airport, going through airport security, go through a bond sniffer, put my stuff through an x-ray. Do you wow. take off your shoes? I don't have to take off. Uh, don't have to take off your shoes as long as they're not metal. Okay. If you're wearing metal shoes to work, then you're going to have a bad time. Ah, <laughs> uh, my steel shoes. Yeah. No, you got to get the composite safety shoes. That's the way to go. <laughs> weird things to get excited about i know but not having to take your shoes off every day especially in the winter when there's slush and stuff on the ground is a big deal man that's like i worked in uh in electronics manufacturing and uh having shoes that had the low resistance soles so you didn't have to wear the uh the grounding wires was great yep i was so excited when i got my low ohm shoes Because I, I could walk, I could walk in the door and just walk around in my shoes. I didn't have to go and put on like a grounding strap and whatnot. Yeah, yeah you get excited about weird things when you get into industries like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wear sneakers. Well, yeah. Well, now we don't do anything that's like. There's no ESD issues around. No. Actually, I don't even wear shoes at work now. You just have to be really careful when you're handing a circuit board to somebody at work. Yeah, I've had that happen before where we arced through it, just like random stuff. But like, oh. Uh, that might not work that's anymore. Now garbage. Yeah, <laughs> there was a spark between you. A little Aww. bit. Of, yeah. Lame. Uh, uh, anyway, so, yeah, nuclear oh, stuff. Uh, the engineering is almost backwards because a lot of it revolves around um, designing um, the physical size of a like robot or a piece of equipment first, because. So much of it is in just ridiculously tiny spaces. Like so, you're talking both. There's this the space around the the core that it's difficult to deal with, but also, and then you're also talking the space yeah. in the core. Yeah, both. And it's not even um, the core, the or the um, the reactor face, as we'd call it. Okay, my, uh, my lack of terminology that, has caused you to forget. Yeah, no. everything you know. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there, the there's thing two- that goes <laughs> or the thing that goes bing. There's two main places in the. Uh, in the nuclear power plant where I've done most of my work and that's on the reactor face and then on the steam generators themselves. Okay. Um, okay. So basically the way nuclear power works is the nuclear fuel is just a heat source for water. Water flows over it. That all happens on the reactor face and then the water flows is superheated, flows down through another system and then basically boils other water that generates steam, which goes to a turbine, which generates electricity. That's so, in a particular type of reactor? That's a can-do reactor can specifically. Do reactor. Yeah. Um, can-do? Can-do. Can-do. Uh, that's so positive. Canadian can- deuterium uranium? Correct. Oh, yeah. Whoa. I know all the things. Wow. Yeah. I prefer, like, can-do attitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But a lot of other reactors are very similar. Like, uh, Do they have the big pool, like in James Bond movies? Mm, yes. Cool. But that's not uh, anything to do with the actual reactor. That is a spent fuel bay in our case. So any uh, nuclear fuel that's been used up goes to that. Too. So it's not like in the movies where when the water level goes down or red lights come on, it's like... No, there are, fall in and- there are plants like that. I was working at a uh, PWU, uh, no, PWR, excuse me, pressurized water reactor in the States. And that's kind of, they have a pool that covers the, re- the actual hmm. reactor, I believe. Well, the, can, can you, like, there's the two technologies, the, the yeah. big thing about can-do's is they don't use enriched fuel, right? Right. So they don't, the pools that you're thinking of, they're, that's the heavy water that they need in order to keep the yeah. the enriched fuel from just going critical all the time, right? Uh, yeah. The, no, because the can-do is the one that uses the heavy water. Oh, it's the, yeah, okay. It's, it's so the, because it's using heavy water, it doesn't need enriched fuel, but if uh, you're using enriched 
or if you're not using heavy water, then you do need enriched fuel. And that's when they need the rods that absorb the like neutrino absorbing rods to like take it away from being critical. Uh, can do has those as well. Oh, okay, that's just yeah, a general. It's just thing. a control rod uh. that kind of slows down the chain reaction so it doesn't go critical on you. Yeah, but in any case, like I think if you if you like took away everything around the candor reactor you just end up with a chunk of uranium as opposed to like a melted hole in the floor yeah yeah Maybe that sounds safer that's what's great about candor reactors yeah they're pretty easy to shut down but anyway uh so getting back to like the spaces we're working <laughs> getting uh, back to what i actually yeah, do what I, <laughs> this is about me guys i'm the guest here can we stay focused please all right um no, uh, so the, there's the reactor face and then the steam generators are the kind of the two places where I tend to work. And both are extremely tight, but in different ways. Okay. Uh, if you're working on a reactor face, you have a lot of space kind of around you. Um, but you're also working on essentially a giant moving bridge that goes up and down the reactor face. So you have a platform where you have to have all of your equipment that the guys who are doing the work will need to have. And then they're doing that work. Typically around five feet in from the very face of the reactor, and they're trying to work through a hole that's about three inches in diameter. Now, this is so the, the reactor face is got a whole bunch of holes in it, and there's a whole bunch of like fuel rods. Yeah, in the back. well, it, if you imagine it like a bunch of uh, six inch round pipes, mm-hmm. uh, I think let's see, uh, 480, I think is the number. Okay, so in there's like four, a grid, on 480 that? in like almost like a hexagon type shape. Okay, and mm-hmm. each uh, tube is or around three about, inch, about, about three inches <laughs> apart from each other okay side to side and top and bottom right and then in addition to that there's the feed water piping where the uh, the heavy water's coming through mm-hmm. attached on the far end of either pipe okay and then usually we're not working on that stuff a lot of the stuff i've done is all the way five feet in where the uh face of the calandria is okay and what's a calandria, the calandria is the uh the inner structure where the fuel actually sits. Okay. The first like five feet is basically just shielding mm. and like insulation for the nuclear fuel. Which is why you can be there physically without just dying. Yeah. When, and, <laughs> and that's with fuel actually being in the reactor as well. Oh, wow. So you can actually be there while the reactor's running? It's not the, you can't be there while the reactor's running because, uh, when the reactor's running, there's neutron radiation, which is basically the most dangerous one that you can deal with. It sounds pretty dangerous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, when the reactor is not running, so it's basically the reaction, the reaction has stopped, but the fuel is still in the reactor. The reactor mm-hmm. isn't defueled during this. Right. But it's still fairly safe. It, like, well, like, again, the, the, the fuel that's in there, the uranium that's in there isn't any more radioactive than uranium that's like on the ground in Chalk River. Yeah. As more opposed, or less. As opposed to like the, the enriched fuel stations where the, the uranium in there is several times more radioactive than what you would find in nature. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, one of the other problems they have, uh, in a, in a can do reactor, because there's a separation of the heavy water and the light water that's actually used for the power generation, um, where that doesn't happen is in the enriched, uh, uranium environment, mm-hmm. they get a lot more, uh, radioactivity in spots where we wouldn't in a can do reactor. For example, the steam generators, uh, that we work on are considered often secondary side, which means it's just light water instead of heavy water. The water in the turbines has never actually come in contact with anything radioactive. Correct. And that's the stuff that uh, gets dumped out into the lake. And, mm. what, uh, and a lot of people think, oh, nuclear plant dumping water into the lake is a horrible idea. But this stuff never comes into contact with anything that's come into contact with 
and nuclear source. Yeah. So it's generally very safe. It's not like the water they use in um, Japan, which was notoriously a bad scene. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I think like those are again in Japan. Those were enriched enriched fuel reactors. So yeah. They're, they're you're boiling regular water yeah. and you're using that straight into your into the turbines. Okay, so you you're in a complicated tight spot. Yeah. What are basically. you doing? So uh, the way a lot of the designs go is there, it's often uh, problems will come up at a nuclear plant that they have to fix either because it's um, generally it's not even because it's making things unsafe. But it's because it's reducing the life of the nuclear plant as a whole. Um, you know, things that'll wear out and whatever. They want to replace it so that they can keep running, so they can keep making money. That's all. That's what it's all about. Especially because um, these plants have like decades long lifespans, like yeah. the hardware in there. Yeah. And they're, I mean, some of them, like I believe Pickering is already kind of past its original intended design length or it's coming up to it, mm-hmm. but they've kind of extended it by doing these kind of maintenance activities. And there's always going to be unexpected things that come up. And a lot of what we design is um, intended to just kind of go in and fix or maintain certain aspects of the system that they didn't expect they would have to do anything with. They figured they would be replacing it once it hit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, This nuclear stuff is a fad. Yeah. No one's going to be using this in a while. (laughs) Well, or just like it wasn't quite accounted for as much as they thought it would be, or they thought a lot of times when you engineer something, you expect it to be rock solid forever. But the fact is, especially in like power generation, because of heat cycles where it gets hot and cold and hot and cold, a lot of weird stuff happens. Mm. Uh, for example, a job I was on a little while ago called, we called it West Shift. Um, literally what was happening is because of the heat cycles on the, uh, the fuel bundles, the tubes that the fuel is in was expanding over time. So they, when they designed the plant, they anticipated the expansion of the metal. So one side was, is fixed of the tube and the other side is free. So it expands in one direction, which is to the east. It expands to the east. Okay. The problem they ran into is that the expansion had gone on so long that some of the tubes were verging on actually blocking the bridge that goes up and down the face from moving up and down, (laughs) which would essentially mean that they could not get a, the fueling machine up to those tubes anymore to remove or refuel. So they would have to basically pull that whole tube and put a new one in. So what we did for a job is we went in and literally shifted it to the west. (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) the whole tube was welded on that side, about five feet in from the face of the... uh, Back behind all the shielding. Yeah. Yeah. Not not behind the shielding, but like like I was saying, you got about a three-inch, four-inch hole you're trying to install equipment through (laughs) to get at this weld that's five feet down. Mm-hmm down the tube and so how did you do that yeah uh basically a lot of long reach tools and things that clip together uh in the end uh we had Lego? <laughs> <laughs> in the end we had a um uh, an orbital cutting welding and cleaning tool so it was a modular tool that we could remove attachments from uh and it would cl- attach onto a um essentially a bracelet with a gear on it so the bracelet would go in in three pieces and be clipped on around the uh, the pressure tube, mm-hmm. and then the motor portion with the set like some accelerometers and whatnot would go in and attach onto that bracelet, and then the tooling portions would go in and uh, onto a dovetail and attach to that, and then be orbited around. 
So this is working from outside the pipes, but inside the reactor. It seems like a lot of what you do is working from outside something, inside Inside something, something using really long, unwieldy tools. That is absolutely true. Because the the other main job, the other job I've had a lot of experience with and spent a lot of time with is something called water lancing. So that's on the steam generator side. So it's a little bit different. Essentially, you're dealing with a giant, like, high-pressure hot water boiler. Uh, inside is many little tubes, about half inch in diameter. Oh, by the way, everything in nuke is imperial. <laughs> Despite the fact that we're in Canada and the reactors were designed in Canada, it's all imperial just because it's so old at this point. <laughs> so and, the, and none of the hardware has been replaced in 40 years. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. You go into like the uh, control rooms and stuff and it just looks like something out of the original Star Trek. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally stealing the the word nuke. I'm going to be so cool when I talk to people. And be like, oh, you know, when you when you deal with nuke, you know, everything everything's got to be an imperial. What is that accent? What? Is- I don't know. It's the accent people use when they're a nuke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, the number of people you're going to interact with who will know that's wrong is very small. So I think you're okay. <laughs> I was nodding. I'm right. <laughs> Um, this is from the guy who said nuclear. Nuclear. <laughs> yep. Uh, I do. Right. So, um, I distracted Calvin. Half inch, <laughs> half inch tubes in a kind of, I don't know how else to describe it other than a, like a lattice grid okay. arrangement. So if you kind of imagine like a lattice fence, kind of like that, except with tubes going through each of those holes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, cool. so it's that kind of arrangement and the space between the tubes is about an eighth of an inch. So, um, even though that's on the secondary side, so it's clean water that's in there, it's still got, um, you know, minerals, minerals and stuff yep. in it that'll eventually, <laughs> I know these set, things. that'll eventually settle <laughs> I work in out. nuke. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously as the water's boiled off, it leaves the minerals behind. Mm. You do that many, many times. It starts to build up in as what we call sludge that'll build up on the bottom of the tube sheet. That sounds like a great technical term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The sludge. Sludge. It's yeah. literally called sludge. And there's two types. There's hard and soft sludge. <laughs> these are, this is what it's referred to. I've never heard it called anything else. I like it. We, we need more terms like this yeah. in yeah. other engineering disciplines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, this sludge kind of builds up over time. And if it starts off as hard, soft sludge, and then if it piles up too high, it compresses and becomes hard sludge, which is basically, uh, the consistency of like concrete. And oh, you can geez. never Perfect. get it out. And it actually starts to like pinch the tubes, yeah. or even if the tubes are vibrating, it can, uh, rub against them and create holes. Hmm. If that happens, then you've got all of a sudden your heavy water mixing with your light water. And that's a really bad situation to mm-hmm. be in. So how do you fix that? So what we do is something called water lancing, where essentially we are using a 9,000 PSI jet of water to slice away this sludge that settles on the bottom before it has a chance to harden. I'm assuming it's not just like a guy with a pressure washer. No, because we're inside inside the steam generator. (laughs) So you're going through a hole that's about four, four, five inches in diameter. Mm -hmm. And then you're doing a 90 degree turn to go into the lattice of tubes. Uh, And that, again, like I said, you have to work in a space inside those lattice. that's about an eighth of an inch thick. So what we have is this one eighth inch thick, uh, maybe one and a half inch high strip of urethane with a small hose in it that we pump 9,000 PSI water through. But this thing has to be like 15 feet long because it's got to go 
like six feet in through a four inch hole, do a 90 degree turn and go like another five feet into the actual mm. lattice work and then deliver a 90 degree down jet of of water. So this is like the guy trying to unlock his car with a coat hanger through the top of his door, only it's 15 feet long. Pretty much. It reminds me of sort of like, yeah. if you guys watch Friends with the poking stick? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> only on the end of the poking stick is a 9,000 PSI water jet. And you have to turn first. Yeah. <laughs> so... So um, that's that's the kind of the general stuff that we do. Now, a lot of it isn't super electrical, like technical. So a lot of what I end up doing is designing um, the cameras and uh, like proc sensors and fairly like simple um, system uh, motors as well and things like that. Fairly simple, but simple conceptually, but simple not necessarily conceptually, in but that position. My biggest issue is the mechanical guys design the tooling first. And then give it to me and say, here's the amount of space you have to install this. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Pick a motor that goes here. Yeah. yeah. It's like, here's what we need. Here's your space. Make it fit. Ah. Uh, as opposed to a lot of, I think, other electrical type things where it'd be like, here's what we want it to do on an electrical standpoint. And then let's make a frame or a box or whatever to fit it. Right. I this don't. Is, this uh, is what you were talking about, however, 20 minutes ago when you said it was backwards. Well, it was a little bit backwards. See, <laughs> yeah. I'm actually staying on point. Yes. Oh, you're much better at that than we are. <laughs> we are doing, we're doing this podcast forward and talking about things that are done backwards. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> No, I can see that being quite the uh, yeah. quite the difficulty. So that's pretty much the main challenge I come across. That and um, a lot of the work is done by uh, like skilled trades, boilermakers, iron workers, millwrights, uh, those types of guys who are great with working with tools and like a, have a lot of skills. But most of them would be much more comfortable with a wrench in their hand than sitting in front of a computer operating um, yeah. any any kind of software, any kind of HMI. So. There is some challenge in that as well, and I've done a little bit of that kind of work uh, for my company as well, and just trying to keep the interface that those guys are working with as simple as possible to do like a fairly complicated job. Okay, so I see where also you're com- I, sorry, go ahead. I, I see where you were coming from before, like, when you said uh, Pete. Pete said it was robots, and you said, "Well, maybe." So it's kind yeah. of more of like a remote manipulator than a robot. Yeah. So, for example, the um, the water lancing system has kind of two motors involved in it. It has one motor that drives what we call the the guide head, mm-hmm. which goes down a long rail and has a, basically a 90 degree at the end where the lance would go through, so mm-hmm. our high-pressure water lance. Mm-hmm. And then a second motor to obviously drive the lance. Right. So, like, that's pretty much it. Then the rest of it is done, a lot of it is done by visual. Uh, so you'll have a couple cameras at the at the end of the guide head where the guys can actually see the tubes and use that to kind of line up where they're trying to put the lance in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if, if you asked a, a lay person, they would probably still refer to it as like a robot arm. But Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's long, rigid bodies connected by actuators with sensors and some sort of tool at the end. Yeah. Sounds mm-hmm. kind of like a robot arm. We'll submit it to a robot or <laughs> yeah. not and see what he says. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, the uh, maybe the other, um, the one for West Shift would be considered more of a robot because it's actually using like... Uh, more advanced sensors because it's actually Robotics. got accelerometers and stuff to yeah. determine its kind of position around the tube. Mm-hmm. Are uh, some are some of the tasks like automated? Like once you get it set up in position, you say go and it does one set of things. Like it yeah, cuts something. Uh, so the welding uh, would be actually pretty much everything on West Shift would have been like that. Uh, we'd set we'd get the tooling installed, try and find our ninety degree home position, uh, get our tool installed. Now we would we didn't have any kind of um, 
feedback from it to t- so it would automatically know what tool was installed. That was all just done manually through the computer software. Okay. Um, but then once we got everything into position, we told it what it was using, we'd more or less just hit go and it would do its own thing, whether it was welding or it was like cutting off the old weld, uh, running the cleaner to clean the spot where it just cut it off or, or doing the weld itself. Yeah, that hmm. sounds distinctly robot-esque. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've also talked, um, getting back to something you mentioned earlier in previous episodes about this whole industry that sort of surrounds a lot of engineering, especially industrially, where there's subcontractors of subcontractors of contractors. And I feel like you've mentioned before that becomes an issue where it's not just that you have skilled trades using the equipment, but you're not even training them. Someone else is training them and you just sort of make the thing that does it and yeah. hope it doesn't break. Essentially, yeah. Essentially we'd, we'd train a small group, like two or three trades who would be foremen or trainers. And then those guys would train the bulk of the actual workers um, we're generally not encouraged to have direct contact with the workers relating to work type things. Like I can't just walk up to a guy we've hired and say, Hey, can you do this for me? I have to go and talk to his boss right. to do that, even though he might be sitting at the desk beside me. Mm-hmm. Now, Is that, that being, also a security thing? Or? It's not a security thing. It's just the way that the, uh, the collective bargaining agreements have kind of worked out. Uh, union politics. Yeah. Union politics for the most part. It, it, to be honest, most of the guys are awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. but you got some, you're always going to have some guys who just like want to play by the rules or maybe they just don't like you and they don't want to talk to you and they technically don't have to. (laughs) So if they, if they put their foot down on something like that, then you just have to talk to their foreman. That's the way it works. It's, yeah. It's not always terrible, but uh, it can <laughs> it can be uh, problematic at times if you just want to do something simple. All right. That being said, doing things easily and simply in a new plant is not. Always I was going to say it doesn't easy. sound like anything simple with no. this. Uh, no, no. Even the simplest kind of maintenance that you have to do on a lot of this equipment—that's the other big part of the design aspect—is you have to be very careful about um, maintainability mm. because it's not like a lot of other places where you can just walk in, open it up, and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Once it's gone into a nuclear facility, it's basically been irradiated, especially if it's going into the vault where the reactor is. Mm. Uh, secondary side where the steam generators are, not so much. You can pull that stuff out, like wipe it on your clothes and probably walk out at the end of the day with no problems. If you try to do that with something that's been in the vault, it's mm. picked up loose radioactive contamination, which is basically just... Little bits of radioactive yeah, stuff. In- invisible little bits of radioactive stuff. Mm. And once it gets on you, it like... That's it. That's how you're running into problems. That's one of the main things they're trying to avoid with a, a lot of the personal protective equipment at a nuke plant mm. is spreading that stuff around. So are you in like big suits? Like Definitely in- do the big suit thing. So the big suit has two um, purposes. First of all, it's, ma- it's generally made out of rubber and that's to prevent the uh, radioactive water from touching, like getting onto your skin and being absorbed. And secondly, to keep the loose radioactive particles off of you. And um, do you go into like a giant shower at the end to get like washed down? Or? Well, only if you get contaminated. Generally, oh, okay. you're wearing that suit to avoid that happening. Oh, okay. So if you have to get into the big shower, it's because something's gone horribly something's wrong. Something's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> exactly. Do you guys share these suits? The, uh, big, the big rubber suit? The big rubber suits. I'm wondering if they get funky. Uh, <laughs> they're pretty clean because after every use, because of the potential for that loose contamination to have oh, gotten yeah. on them, they go to a special laundry facility that's designed to deal with nuclear laundering that's good <laughs> i want to go to the nuclear laundry yeah 
Um, so, I mean, they get worn by many, many people, but they're cleaned after every single use. That's reassuring. It's not like wearing a mascot suit, which I've done, which is <laughs> that would probably way, be way less funkier, fun. Yeah. You have a tiny little fan that you're just breathing out of. Uh, we have like compressed air plugged into our suit and it like blows in. So it sounds refreshing. It yeah. does. Yeah, because so, the air has to be external as well. You can't just have like a fan mounted to it because then you're just sucking in that yeah, loose contamination. Yeah, kind of pointless. Or that <laughs> exactly. I'm blow the radioactive stuff directly into my face. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, with all of the, the changes recently in people's uh, reactions to nuclear power and, and the uh, government uh, positions on nuclear power, is there a lot of work in maintaining nuclear power plants right oh, now? Oh, tons. Yeah? I mean... uh just in Ontario, at least, nuclear supplies so much of the power that we use. Right, that they just Pickering and Bruce. And, yeah. Uh, and they're in the middle of a huge upgrade, right? Like, there's a there's a big push to upgrade all the facilities, I think. Yeah, I think um, there is... It's potential... There's potential that Pickering will be shut down. It's coming up to, like, end of life, and um, a lot of anti-nuclear activists are kind of in that general area just all the time they're just yeah. really standing around well it's i mean it's near a big city you get a lot of like yeah I, I can imagine people that are against it right right um but but bruce they've just finished doing a bunch of like overhauls on yeah it. restart yeah just got done so they basically got all their units up and running because cool. there's eight units generating power so eight full reactors uh with each reactor would have eight steam generators so okay if you kind of imagine that, we basically work on one one unit at a time when we're working. Um, Would the other units be up and running while you're in there working on one of them? Definitely. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So your neighboring unit is definitely up and running, unless it's down for its own reasons. But typically, they try to only have one, maybe two down at a time. Okay, so you can't be working on it while it's live, but you'll be you could be in the same room or right right, yeah. right beside one that's live. Yeah, but I mean you're separated by a fair amount of distance and several feet of concrete. Yeah, like these are big mm. buildings like you were saying to walk from one side of the building to yeah. the other is like so just to a walk, 15 minute walk. Yeah, just to walk across four units, which is like kind of one half the plant. This is Bruce A and Bruce B, they're separated by uh, maybe a couple kilometers on the actual like plant campus, mm. and each one has four reactors in it. Uh, to walk from the very start of one unit across, it's actually five, but one is a unit zero, as they call it, which doesn't have a reactor. It's just kind of offices and engineers and stuff. Okay. Uh, shipping, receiving, that kind of boring stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the non-nuclear part of nuclear. Exactly. Power. Well, it's conventional side as well. That's where all the turbines are. Anyway, oh, okay, to walk right. from like the first unit all the way across to the end of the fourth unit. Uh, I mean, if you are walking at a good pace, you can do it in five minutes pretty easy. If you're walking at a more leisurely or nuclear pace, it'll probably be 10 or 15. <laughs> the nuke pace. <laughs> the nuke pace. Things don't always move fast at the nuke plant, so, you know. Unless things are moving fast, in which case you move fast. Yeah. If, yeah. If, Occasionally, yeah. yeah it's, uh, if somebody's moving fast, maybe you want to move that fast. Lo- long <laughs> periods of, sta- of, like, not stationary with brief movements of accelerated movement. Moments of panic, uh, pretty much first with boredom. Oh yeah, that's a fair assessment of my work environment a lot of the time. Cool. So, is, is this something that you that you want to continue doing for a long term, or is there do you have aspirations in your engineering future? I don't have any direct <laughs> aspirations in my engineering future that I can come up with. Yeah. Um, I mean, ro- robots are cool. I would like to do more stuff with like real robots as well. Mm. Um, it seems like this would be where you could do some neat. Uh, like autonomy because you it's it's such a pain to try to control things yeah. down inside the problem often is the amount of development time you have 
So usually when a job comes up, there are basically the two types of jobs we do are we need something right now, make it, fix it. Oh my God, fix it, fix it. <laughs> <laughs> um, or jobs that we've been doing for forever, mm. uh, that nobody wants to spend any extra money on because, Hey, it works. Why yeah, fix it? Yeah. Um, and also you don't have unlimited ability to put all the components or neat cutting edge technology into these things because it's nuclear. Like you can't use like 5g or Wi-Fi or like yeah, cutting no. edge, like components and sensors yeah. and stuff because it has to be regulated. And yeah, no. Yeah. That's a, that's a big thing is there's basically no wireless technology allowed in these plants. Hmm. Um, because there's always concern. It's going to interfere with the, uh, control room signals in some way, shape or form. Hmm. Yeah. Not knowing what it would do. It's better just not to have it anywhere. Yeah. It's like airplanes. <laughs> there's a potential maybe, theoretically something could go wrong so just don't bother yeah as yeah. long as there's potential mm. it's better just not to open that can of worms but that being said the nuclear aspect actually in most places we work doesn't have that much effect on electrical components mm. itself so i you mean you don't need like hardened electronics to deal yeah, with it the the biggest thing that is affected by uh radiation and this i'm talking mostly gamma because that's what the main radiation we're concerned about in most places is uh cameras Cameras can have a shortened lifespan, if, especially in really high radioactive fields. Is it the like the sensors, the CMOS sensors start to break down? Or? Yeah, because okay. gamma radiation is essentially just high-powered photons, right? Right. So, so it's like it's, you're blinding the camera. It's slowly. literally like that. And uh, you can, if there are some videos you can maybe find online, I'm not sure, um, but I've seen videos of cameras going down into the the Chalk River reactor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were having some problem. Now, the reactor may have been running, which would make things even worse because then you're also dealing with neutron, which will destroy a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they run this camera down, and I don't even think the camera survived the full trip all the way to the bottom of the reactor. Like, as it got close, it just started, like, it's, dying. Yeah, you basically see, like, it goes snowy. Yeah. And then you pull it out, and it's just done. <laughs> it won't ever turn back on again. So how do you deal with that if you're using cameras? I guess it's because it's turned off slash you have special cameras oh we don't have special cameras it's just a matter of replacing them but like i said a lot of the fields Mm. we're dealing with aren't nearly as high as you'd be dealing with in that sort of situation especially if that reactor was running uh because uh gamma radiation is bad but neutron is just so much worse Mm. um that we have uh ptz cameras pan to pan tilt zoom for anybody that's not familiar with ptz that's basically any <laughs> any type of security camera that you'll see like in shopping malls or whatever that moves around. Oh, okay. full field of view kind of camera. Yeah, so they use those just to like monitor the inside of the vault when outages are going on, when the reactor shut down and work's happening. Uh, because obviously you can't just go in there and look at stuff whenever you want. It takes mm-hmm. like an hour to suit up and get in there, and then you're also getting radiation you don't always want to do that if you can avoid it yeah the less time spent around <laughs> radiation the better so they'll, they'll have all these cameras installed inside the vault so you can quickly check things out look at the status of equipment and whatever um those things will survive whole outages being in the vault no problem but if you were to shut up shut the vault turn the reactor on they'd probably last an hour wow wow so so once the reactor is on how do they see inside they don't no so when the reactor's on, it's just sort of like, I hope everything's fine. Well, there's a lot. I mean, they have sensors, obviously. There's a and, lot yeah. of, yeah, sensors happening. Um, they can tell uh, if there's a drop in pressure. They can tell if there's a leak remotely, like yeah. in anything. It, it they, can, they can do it all from the control room in terms of monitoring the actual status of the plant equipment. Fair enough. It's, the cameras are mostly there for monitoring work. It's treated like a big black box, like most complex engineering things, like yeah. 
airplane engines and stuff like that. It's like stuff's yeah. going on inside. We can tell if it's going properly because lines and dials and lights. And exactly. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to make us smarter? I'm going to like enrich your fact knowledge. Yes. All right. I'm not, I'm not going to bother singing it this time because if we keep, we dub over it every time anyway. Yeah. Okay. Except for this time. Okay. So I was, uh, um, since my original fact I thought of, everyone already knew. Um, this was reminded of because you were talking about corned beef uh, a couple episodes ago and you said something about corningware. And, uh, I still don't actually know if it has anything to do with that originally, but I looked it up. It may or may not. (laughs) Thank you, Pete. Well, no, like the Wikipedia article refers to corning as being that process, but doesn't explicitly say that corningware was developed for that. Hmm. Well, anyway, corning, the company that makes it, Owens Corning, makes corningware. Mm-hmm. Originally, that material, corningware, was developed while well, they were trying to make a photosensitive glass. Good job, Pete. They were trying to make Sorry. a photosensitive glass, and uh, they ended up making this really strong temperature-resistant glass, and uh, the original application of Corningware was as a coating for ICBMs. We talked about it earlier. Huh. The intercontin- intercontinental ballistic missiles, especially nose cones, because they were they were looking for material they could make these missiles out of so that when they went into space and then they re-entered as they were going to their targets, they didn't wouldn't blow up. So they needed a, a strong material that they could make easily and form into neat shapes. And that's how they that was the main use for Corningware originally before it ended up in your kitchen. Cool. That's neat. I think so. From our missiles to your kitchen. <laughs> well, it's a, um, actually, the, the, there was another one that would have fit better with nuclear because it was, uh, Teflon originally was used in nuclear, I think. It was, it was because it was, they had, uh, uranium hexafluoride is, uh, it was one of the byproducts of, uh, the Manhattan product or project huh. and they had to deal with it, but it's really reactive. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because we're literally not allowed to use Teflon on anything we design that's going into a steam generator. Interesting. Uh, yeah, the uh, it has bad effects on the chemical uh, balance of the light water specifically. Hmm. Uh, so if ever any Teflon is left in the reactor, it's a bad thing. So huh. and, and for our high pressure water systems, we can't use Teflon tape to like seal any of the threads or anything like that. Huh. Hmm. I would never have even thought of that. Yeah, because I guess it is. It is basically like a wax, like the the material that makes Teflon yeah. slippery. Yeah. So. Yeah, material selection can be a big deal there too, because there's so much focus on chemistry. Because mm-hmm. effects in chemistry will uh, really reduce the lifespan of a steam generator. Yeah, well, it sounds like everything you're doing is sort of trying to maximize the lifespan of everything, minimize the the, the frequency with which you have to go in and do these kinds of jobs. Exactly. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think that's a reasonably good place to wrap up. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Let's wrap it up. You want to um, uh, you want to talk about your your beer you were drinking there? Yeah, how do you like it? What are you drinking? So drinking the uh, the Tom Green beer, Milk Stout by Bose. Nice. It's, uh, I am too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you you actually gave that a real rating. I did. As opposed to all the rest of these where we've just been sort of making up a rating system. You had like an app and everything. Yeah. You're seriously yeah. into rating these things. Yeah. No, I gave it around a, a four. I think for a stout, it's uh, it's just nice to drink. It's not anything crazy. Four out of four out of five. Nice. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's 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 nice, it's easy to drink, it's not over the top. I don't think it's doing anything crazy special really, but that's not always what you want when you're drinking a stout either. It's just just pleasing. It's got it's got lots of flavor, it's got lots of good body. Um 
Calvin's taking not. the taking the beer waste more seriously than all our other guests. <laughs> Calvin's way beer snobbier than most of our guests. I'm not a beer snob. I'm a, a, a connoisseur. Connoisseur. No, I just I, I'm appreciative of good beer. But I, that being said, I don't also I try not to harp on anybody who drinks Coors Light or anything like that because if you enjoy what you're drinking, then have at her. There's no reason to drink anything else. What about harp? Do you harp on people who drink harp? <laughs> Lame. <laughs> That's the one I get called a name. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, okay, so social media. Yeah. How do you dot engineer? Is our website? There's a <laughs> Facebook dot com slash How do you engineer? And Twitter. How do you eng? Yeah. At How do you eng? At How do you eng? Yep. And something on Pinterest. Yep. Pinterest. Yep. <laughs> Wow, we are really not doing well at this wrapping okay. up smoothly. Yeah, so I'm going to say thank you for coming, Kelvin. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's good to be yeah. here. I learned all sorts of <laughs> things about nuclear or nuclear power. Nuclear power. power. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Pete, you want to you wanna give us our outro? I got this. Yep. This episode was brought to you by Zucchini Loaf.